he misrepresented that just like he misrepresented uh, Judge Gorsuch. Says the expert in misrepresenting things. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is The Bradcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A., up in Oregon on 91.7 FM KYAQ on the Central Coast and 106.7 FM Queso in Cottage Grove, 92.9 FM WLRI in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, 88.5 FM KAKU in Maui, Hawaii, WGRN 94.1 FM in Columbus, Ohio, 102.9 FM WLPP in Palinville, New York, and in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950 KTNF. We're also heard streaming coast-to-coast and around the globe on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Revolution 99, Detour Talk, Radio Monterey, and Radio Sputnik, amongst others, blanketing planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you for joining us today for another thrilling action-packed adventure that we call the Bradcast here in these United States. Uh, Desi Doyen, how are you holding up today? I know you've got a bit of a cold. Yeah, I'm getting over it. Okay, <coughs> good. I hope so, and I hope you don't uh, give it to me. Thank me you very too. much in advance. <laughs> or anybody else. So uh, you should be doing uh, well today. I should be doing well today, and and here is why. You know, I wake up in the morning, uh, one of the first things I do, check my uh, iPhone, the, the alerts, the news alerts that have come in. Uh-huh. I thought overnight. you were going to say the first thing you do is panic. But go ahead. Well, yeah, that that a I panic <laughs> and B, I then check my phone, which probably means I'm going to panic even more. And today was absolutely no exception, especially when the headline was France. This was on my alert on my iPhone. France nuclear power plant explosion. Yeah. yeah, that kind of thing will like uh, set you into a bit of a panic. Uh, of course, it might be the sort of thing that I'm expecting these days every day. But here it was actually on my phone uh, from AP uh, via Time magazine. Uh, French authorities say there has been an explosion in a nuclear power plant's machine room. But there is no leak of radiation. No injuries have been reported. Well, then why use nuclear power plant has exploded as the headline, AP, please? You know why they do that. They get you to click. It worked. Made you look. The local government for the uh, Manche region in France says the blast at the Flamanville Flamanville plant on France's northwest coast could uh, coast has been contained and managed. Operator EDF said there were no injuries and that a fire led to a blast in the machine room of one of the two nuclear reactors at the plant. Uh, the operator EDF says uh, that the fire was, quote, immediately brought under control and that the number one reactor was disconnected from the grid. So hopefully that's it. Hopefully there is no more to that story. Hopefully we, we will never discuss it again. 
uh, and nothing worse happens. And I share it with you by way of saying, hey, see, things could be worse. There's some good news. See? Uh, a, a, a nuclear plant did not explode in France. See, everything's fine. Um, and then, of course, everything may be downhill from there. But uh, including uh, Desi Doyen, you'll be back with a Green News report later in this episode. Yes, I will. Uh, which, uh, actually, there is some good news in today's Green we News Report. We always try to scour the Internet to find the good news. Yeah, and you found some, uh, yes. actually, but you'll, you'll have to, folks will have to stay tuned for that. Um, shortly after we went off the air yesterday, Alabama Senator Jeff Sessions was confirmed as the next U.S. Attorney General in a nearly party-line vote, 52 to 47. Um, that would be with uh, Joe Manchin, Senator Joe Manchin from West Virginia, as the only Democrat who supported uh, Jeff Sessions. Sessions himself uh, is a senator or was a senator. He voted present, so he didn't vote. All of the Republicans voted with Jeff Sessions. Kristen Clark of the uh, Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights under the law, uh, issued a statement saying we are disappointed that the Senate chose to turn a blind eye to Jeff Sessions' long record of hostility to civil rights. We intend to be relentless in holding this Justice Department accountable. The attorney general has an obligation and duty to protect the civil rights of all Americans. We will not allow the Justice Department to abandon this important work now. A lot of civil rights advocates had uh, similar things to say, as did Dan Pfeiffer, uh, formerly of the Obama administration, who who noted Sessions, uh, too racist to be a judge in 1986 when he was rejected in a bipartisan Senate vote, as we discussed yesterday, just racist enough to be in charge of civil rights and voting rights in 2017. Yep. Mark Elias uh, of the uh, Democratic Party election and voting rights attorney said this will have a pro- will have profound consequences for voting rights before DOJ fought with us against suppression. Now we will be fighting against the DOJ. We'll be talking uh, about those uh, profound consequences in a bit with my guest coming up. But I wanted to hit uh, a, 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 a comment here from a, a Brad Blog commenter after yesterday's show posted at uh, bradblog.com zap kitty one of one of our favorite commenters oh, you know zap yes uh zap kitty writes uh jeff sessions was confirmed with the help of senator joe manchin of west virginia a dem if manchin is not successfully primaried it shall be the certain and inerrant sign of corporate democratic dominance even in the face of 2016's total electoral disaster And so the elites will be allowed to keep on attempting to will their own version of reality into existence until they get us all killed, says Zap Kitty at Bradblog.com. Ernie Canning, uh, our our legal analyst at Bradblog.com, responded to Zap and said, The Senate GOP's fascist-like silencing of its opposition is intolerable. Ernie was referring to what... uh, what the Republicans did to Senate, uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren uh, w- when they shut her down for daring to read from a letter about Jeff Sessions and about his uh, attempted voter suppression uh, written by Coretta Scott King, Martin Luther King's uh, widow. Uh, he, uh, Ernie calls it intolerable. It is vital that its majority control of the Senate end after the 2018 midterm 
says Canning. I whole I also wholeheartedly concur with Zap Kitty that genuine Democrats should target Manchin in the 2018 primary. That should occur in California as well. He notes Diane Feinstein, Democrat, correctly opposed Sessions nomination, but on a host of other issues, she's been a Democrat in name only, says Ernie. So my question for both of them, and I replied at bradblog.com, but this is a question uh, for them there and for you here, if you wish to write in to me uh, at bradcast at bradblog.com. Maybe I'll uh, maybe I'll have some time for your responses on air uh, tomorrow or in an upcoming show. If uh, as long as you keep your answers short and sweet, by the way, so it's easier to share my question to them and to you. While I join the frustration with the very right wing, very corporatist Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia, the idea of primarying him. I have no particular problem with those who wish to do so. But the call for both a 2018 Democratic majority and a more progressive one might be in conflict. Uh, A progressive primary challenger, if he or she were successful to Joe Manchin, could arguably result in a far greater likelihood of a Republican being elected to that seat in West Virginia. This is West Virginia that we're talking about here, after all. So while a far more progressive Democratic caucus would certainly be welcome, there's already this uphill fight to gain seats in 2018 for the Democrats. They've got to defend a lot more seats than Republicans do. Yeah, the race uh, in 2018 is way more difficult for Democrats this particular go. It is. It would have been easier last time, but uh, 2018 is 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 really bad for Democrats. Right. It's really bad. And as is, Democrats need to pick up three seats, I believe it is, in 2018 to get a majority back. They had to pick up three seats. That's in addition to defending all the current seats that will be up for re-election if they want to take uh, retake the majority in the U.S. Senate and if they hope to serve, therefore, as a check, some kind of check and balance to the madness of Donald Trump and the uh, and the GOP. So while primarying Dianne Feinstein out here in California would most likely, if it was successful, it would most likely result in a, a more progressive Democratic senator here in California, whether it's, you know, the successful challenger or whether it's Feinstein herself who has moved to the left because of such a, a primary. The West Virginia seat, it would arguably, arguably anyway, uh, you know, result in a, uh, well, a more progressive caucus, surely, but one that could still be in the minority and unable to block Trump. This would make it harder, potentially harder for Democrats to take back the majority. OK, fine. So what's more important here, a Democratic majority in the Senate as a as a check and balance on Trump's madness or a more progressive one, including what could be a, you know, a smaller one because a Republican could take that seat, the, the Democrat. The Democrats would have a more progressive caucus, uh, but it might be a smaller one and not in the majority. So what's more important, a Democratic majority or a more progressive one that is more likely to still be in the majority in the uh, in the minority? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. I'd love to hear your answers. If you have any thoughts, uh, drop me some email. Bradcast at bradblog.com, because I suspect this is going to be a question that's going to come up a lot between now and 2018. So anyway, I'd love your thoughts. Uh, speaking of a more progressive, more courageous Democratic caucus, here's today's uh, today's distraction, at least one of them anyway, from the White House. 
Uh, Over the weekend, you'll recall Donald Trump attacked a federal judge, a George W. Bush appointee in Washington state, as a, quote, so-called judge for halting his executive order that banned travel from seven Muslim-majority countries, as well as indefinitely uh, halting Syrian war refugees from coming into the country. Well, on, uh, on, on Wednesday... Uh, This week, Senator Richard Blumenthal said that uh, Neil Gorsuch, uh, Donald Trump's nominee for the stolen U.S. Supreme Court seat, uh, Blumenthal said that he met with Gorsuch uh, and uh, described uh, that Gorsuch described Donald Trump's tweets attacking that federal judge as, quote, disheartening and demoralizing. That during their private meeting and uh, and urged the Supreme Court nominee Blumenthal did to make those comments public. A spokesman for Gorsuch within 30 minutes after the meeting confirmed Gorsuch's comments to CNN. But on Thursday morning today, Trump contradicted the spokesman in a tweet saying that Blumenthal was, quote, misrepresenting Gorsuch's comments. And also uh, Trump went on to say as much on camera today. His comments were misrepresented. And what you should do is ask Senator Blumenthal about his Vietnam record that didn't exist after years of saying it did. So ask uh, Senator Blumenthal about his Vietnam record. He misrepresented that just like he misrepresented uh, Judge Gorsuch. Yeah, he he didn't misrepresent Judge Gorsuch. I can talk about his military thing in a moment, uh, although that is part of the bait that I hope people do not take. Uh, Both of Judge Gorsuch's official representatives, Ron Bongean and former uh, GOP Senator Kelly Ayotte, both working with Gorsuch on uh, on his nomination, serving as his spokespeople. Both of them have publicly confirmed that Gorsuch said these things and that Blumenthal's comments were, in fact, accurate. In fact, in a statement out this morning, uh, I and I believe that was before uh, Trump came out and made these claims uh, on camera in, in any event that he didn't say these things. Uh, but uh, Ayotte's own spokesman, uh, Gorsuch's own spokesman, Ayotte, uh, said in a statement out this morning that Gorsuch finds any criticism of a judge's integrity and independence, quote, disheartening and demoralizing. Moreover, several other senators, including Republican uh, Senator Ben Sass of Nebraska, later relayed uh, almost identical accounts of Gorsuch criticizing Trump's public attacks on the judiciary branch. So this is just a fact. No matter how much Donald Trump says uh, it was misleading, a misleading characterization of Gorsuch. And on that military comment, yes, Blumenthal enlisted in the Marine Reserves after multiple deferments during Vietnam. Trump, on the other hand, who was also eligible for the for the draft during the Vietnam War, Trump never enlisted for nothing. He obtained multiple student deferments. Ultimately, he got a medical deferment for a supposed bone spur to avoid the military draft entirely. So Blumenthal, a Senator Blumenthal, a Democrat from Connecticut, has said he served, quote, in Vietnam, though he didn't. He served during Vietnam. Uh, But when he ran for Senate, he was uh, somewhat opportunistically uh, accused of purposely trying to mislead about his service. Uh, He has apologized for that. Uh, But that is that's why one of the reasons Donald Trump put that bait out there. Don't take it. CNN deserves uh, credit today. Good for CNN for their headline. Trump falsely accuses senator of misrepresenting Gorsuch's criticism. But here's the thing. All of this, all of this 
is a distraction. All of it. Don't fall for it, Democrats. This is meant to make it look like Gorsuch is independent from Trump. The more that you Democrats and, and, and the media focus on this, this squabble, uh, you know, as if it's a squabble between Trump and Gorsuch, the more it is going to feel like you are defending him, uh, defending him and, and, and an independent judiciary from Donald Trump. And I know it's your knee jerk reaction, Democrats, to, you know, join forces with whomever Trump appears to be in opposition to. But don't fall for this one. Don't get in there defending Gorsuch, become his friends, because here, here are the only facts you need to remember, Democrats in the Senate. If you give a damn about an independent judiciary, you will remember nothing else other than the fact that this is a stolen Supreme Court seat and a stolen Supreme Court majority if Gorsuch is allowed to be seated on it. It was stolen in an unprecedented GOP coup, after they refused to even hold hearings for the past year, uh, more than a year since Antonin Scalia died uh, on presidents, you know, they wouldn't hold hearings on uh, President Obama's very centrist, very centrist, two centrist nominee Merrick Garland. So don't fall for the bait by taking Gorsuch's side against Trump. I know it may feel good to, you know, prove Trump wrong. It may feel good, but it is a mirage. You have a duty, Democrats, to protect the court by filibustering anybody but the rightful nominee to the seat, which frankly is Obama's nominee, Merrick Garland, period. And if you don't, you go from protectors of democracy to enablers and collaborators of fascism, of tyranny, filibuster Democrats, period. Even if it leads to Republicans doing away with the filibuster and seating whoever they want anyway. That's probably what's going to happen in the U.S. Senate. But the Republicans are going to do that anyway. And the only ones who respect that filibuster, frankly, are Democrats when they're in the majority. They only respect it uh, when the Republicans can use it to block Democratic nominees. So the other thing to remember, Democrats, uh, don't fall for this. Don't fall for this fight. Don't get into it. Don't be backing uh, Neil Gorsuch as if he's some hero for standing up to Donald, Donald Trump. But the American people have your back on this. I think we talked about it yesterday on the show. Um, new CNN poll says by 51 to 41 percent, Senate Democrats are justified, according to the American people as a whole, Republicans, Democrats alike, American people would be justified in using the filibuster to stop Gorsuch or at least try to stop him. So uh, 51 to 41 percent and they haven't the Democrats haven't even started on this. So the wind is at your back. Democrats don't fall. Don't fall. Uh, and you can call your uh, Democratic or Republican senators and give them your opinion. Uh, 202-224-3121 is the U.S. Capitol switchboard. Call them and let them know your opinion on filibustering Gorsuch. And that they should not get distracted by this nonsense. Neil Gorsuch is not their friend, no matter how much he might appear to be opposing their enemy, Donald Trump. All right. Um, I know we got to get to a quick break, but let me hit this very quickly. Jeff Sessions, as I said, he was uh, 
uh, confirmed as uh, the new attorney general, and he immediately started lying about stuff today. He said today that uh, he, he thinks a rise in crime is a, dang, quote, dangerous permanent trend in the United States. Of course, that contradicts actual facts and actual data from people, uh, if you trust them, those uh, liars over at the FBI. <laughs> uh, Sessions said, we have a crime problem. Uh, I wish this were uh, some sort of aberration or blip, but it is a dangerous permanent trend. No, it is not. The number of violent crimes in the U.S. Uh, rose in 2015 compared to the year before, but according to the FBI's data released in 2016, the total was still lower than levels back in 2011, 2006. It's been a long-term trend down. Crime is falling. The crime and murder rates have been on a long downward trend, and they are now at lows not seen, seen since the 1960s, no matter what Jeff Sessions and Donald Trump say. This is checkable. But facts no longer matter to this administration. And while it's hilarious and distracting, you know, when someone like Kellyanne Conway pretends there was a non-existent massacre by terrorists somewhere in, in Kentucky, Bowling Green Strong, it's, it's damn dangerous when the nation's top cop is preparing to enforce the law based on made-up alternate facts and alternate statistics falsely presented to justify an ideological and political agenda. That's dangerous. And that conversation and how, if possible, the American people can prepare for it and what is likely coming is next on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't go away. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. AP is reporting that four North Carolina voters are suing a Republican political activist they say falsely claimed that they voted illegally last November because they were felons or voted in other states. The libel lawsuit was filed on Wednesday of this week in Greensboro the, uh, by the Southern Coalition for Social Justice, according to AP. The suit said that William Clark Porter's false characterization led the four, four plaintiffs to face, quote, ridicule, contempt, or disgrace. Porter did not respond to uh, telephone or email messages from AP seeking comment, but he had filed three of numerous post-election challenges by Republicans and allies contesting the results in 52 of the state's 100 counties in North Carolina as then-Governor Pat McCrory fought to overcome an Election Day deficit. Nearly all of the protests filed, all of these claims by McCrory and his supporters, nearly all of them were dismissed or sidelined. 
by elections uh, by elections boards in the state on which Republicans held the majority. Pat McCrory, the the governor, conceded to Democratic uh, candidate Roy Cooper, who is now the governor. It was a very, very close race. But of course, uh, when it ended, Pat McCrory claimed that there was voter fraud all over the state. There was not. And they began to name these people who had uh, uh, committed this fraud when they had not. So now at least four of them are fighting back. Good for those plaintiffs. That's one way to push back at this fraud BS that Republicans haul out before every election and after the ones that are really, really close and they want to pretend that they were stolen by Democrats. So I say, great, sue the bastards. Of course, that's just one of the reasons why Jeff Sessions and his new appointment as U.S. Attorney General is so dangerous and ominous. As we discussed in detail on yesterday's program, uh, he had brought false charges against black civil rights ad- activists and heroes back in 1985 when he was the U.S. Uh, United States Attorney in Alabama in an attempt basically to chill, and it was a successful attempt at the time, to chill African-American participation in elections in Alabama's Black Belt. A year or two ago, I mean, over this past weekend, (laughs) Donald Trump picked up with his false claim. It feels like a year or two ago. Donald Trump picked up with his false claim that uh, three to five million illegal votes were cast in the 2016 election during his Super Bowl Sunday interview with a very friendly Bill O'Reilly of Fox News. Is there any validity to the criticism of you that you say things you can't back up factually. And as the president, if you say, for example, that there are three million illegal aliens who voted uh, and then you don't have the data to back it up, some people are going to say that's irresponsible for a president to say that. Is there any validity well, to many that? many people have come out and said I'm right. You know I that. know, but you've no. got to have no, data. They have data. Just tell you. And it doesn't have to do with the vote, although that's a, the end result. It has to do with the registration. And when you look at the registration and you see dead people that have voted, when you see people that are registered in two states that voted in two states, when you see other things, when you see illegals, people that are not citizens and they're on the registration rolls. Look, Bill, we can be babies, but you take a look at the registration. You have illegals, you have dead people, you have this. It's really a bad situation. It's really bad. And... So you think you're going to be proven correct in that statement? Well, I think I already have. A lot of people have come out and said that I am correct. Yeah, but the data has to show that three million illegals voted. Forget that. Forget all of that. Just take a look at the registration, and we're going to do it. And I'm going to set up a commission to be headed by Vice President Mike Pence, and we're going to look at it very, very carefully. Well, that's good. Let's get to the bottom of this. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Uh, Forget that. Forget that three million that I repeated over and over again. Of course, he would like people to repeat that because it was completely and utterly false. As is his claim that many people have said, I'm right. You know that, right? And, uh, of course, uh, O'Reilly compliantly said, oh, yeah, sure. But you need the data. Well, there is no data. You'll also notice that uh, Trump carefully modified his claim about people being registered in more than one state. Uh, he, he used to say there are people who are registered in more than one state. Now he says registered in more than one state and voting in more than one state. He had to modify that because, uh, as it turns out, his son-in-law 
uh, and his top White House advisor, Jared Kushner, is registered in more than one state. His White House press secretary, Sean Spicer, was registered in two different states. Along with Trump's daughter, Tiffany, his top political strategist, Steve Bannon, his Treasury Secretary nominee, Steve Mnuchin, all also uh, registered to vote in uh, in several different states. Now, Trump says, uh, you know, registered in two states, but he added vote also voted in more than one state. Because so many people are registered in more than one state because they move and they don't bother calling their old state's county clerk after they move to ask them to remove them from the voting rolls in the old state or because they die. And in which case they really forget to call the uh, the county clerk and, and tell them to remove them from the rolls. So what's going on here? Well, we've spent quite a bit of time since the election and uh, in the many years before the election telling you exactly what's going on here. We've discussed Donald Trump's call for this major investigation, as he calls it, uh, into what he describes as, quote, voter fraud. His bogus claims have been repeatedly debunked on this show and elsewhere, specifically his claims that he would have won the popular vote, which he lost, by the way by nearly three million votes. He would have won it if not for some three to five million illegal votes cast for Hillary Clinton. But he doesn't want you to think about that anymore. Again, there is zero evidence to support the, that claim whatsoever. And even the authors of the studies that have uh, were cited by the White House to support Trump's bogus claims, those authors have all disputed that their reports even come close to backing up Trump's assertions. So who are these lots of people who said I'm right, as Trump claims? Well, they are largely uh, one guy who works with a, a right wing group named True the Vote, who have been lying for years and years about voter fraud in hopes of instituting photo ID voting restrictions to keep millions of perfectly legal, democratic leaning voters from being able to cast a vote. As Jeff Sessions was confirmed in the U.S. Senate yesterday, True the Vote tweeted their congratulations to Jeff Sessions, said they looked forward to working with both him and the DOJ. Well, of course they do, because this is about imposing restrictions on the right to vote and even the right to register to vote, all using false claims about registration and non-citizens and so forth. And by the way, as if all of this tr uh, this uh, stuff about Trump's family and his staff who are registered to vote in multiple states, as if that was not enough to embarrass him. There's this from AP just late last week. A man who President Donald Trump has promoted as an authority on voter fraud was registered to vote in multiple states during the 2016 presidential election. The AP has learned Greg Phillips whose unsubstantiated claim that the election was marred by three million illegal votes was uh, was tweeted by the president. He was listed on the rolls in Alabama, in Texas and Mississippi, according to voting records and election officials in those states. Apparently, he voted only in Alabama in November, according to records. But in a post earlier this month, Philip described, quote, an amazing effort by volunteers tied to true the vote an organization whose board he sits on, who he said found, quote, thousands of duplicate records and registrations of dead people. Apparently, the claim of three million uh, illegal votes comes from Greg Phillips. Shortly after he uh, appeared on CNN to repeat those claims again, 
Trump tweeted, look forward to seeing the final results of Vote Stand. That's Phillips' uh, specific group. Greg Phillips and crew say at least three million votes were illegal. We must do better. That's what Trump tweeted. But of course, he wants you to forget about that claim now. And he certainly wants you to forget about the fact that Greg Phillips was registered in several states. Writing uh, recently in response to Trump's entirely inaccurate assertions, Michael Slater, president of uh, ProjectVote.org, said, Debunking Trump's voter fraud lies is not enough. We must also prepare for what comes next. First come the lies, then come the laws, Slater writes. That has been the pattern of the Republican Party's voter suppression strategy since the Bush administration. Now, the ridiculous and unsubstantiated claims Trump and his administration are making about illegal voting would seem to forewarn of an unprecedented top-down attack on voting rights led by the White House. Well, what does come next and how should we, how can we be preparing for it in the meantime? After all, the only way, the only way ultimately that we can correct this insanely off course ship now uh, is to vote these guys out of power at the next possible opportunity. That's how democracy is supposed to work. But when you've got gerrymandering and corporate money and politics on top of voter suppression, that became worse than it has ever been since the Jim Crow era following the uh, Supreme Court's gutting of the Voting Rights Act. And now these new efforts underway to restrict the vote, undoubtedly to be led by Jeff Sessions as the U.S. Attorney General. How can democracy, as we have come to know it, as pre precarious, frankly, as it has already been allowed to get in this country, how can democracy possibly survive? How can we get prepared now rather than waiting until, you know, weeks or months before an election when it's largely too late to make any real changes to our system? Joining us to discuss how to prepare for what comes next in that regard is Michael Slater. He's the president and executive director of ProjectVote.org, which works to ensure all Americans can register, vote, and cast ballots that count. Michael came to Project Vote back in 2004 with more than a decade's experience in community, labor, and faith-based organizing uh, at Project Vote. Uh, he led uh, successful efforts to overturn restrictive voter registration laws in seven states under Project Vote's election administration program. And he became the executive director of Project Vote in 2008, helping in the run up to that election to organize one of the most successful voter registration efforts in the nation's history. Michael has contributed to the passage of positive election legislation in several states, has authored or edited numerous articles and publications on election policy, and is frequently called upon to testify in places like Congress on election issues. Michael Slater, sir, welcome to the broadcast. Thank you for having me, Brad. Well, good to have you here. Uh, you, let's let's just jump into your piece here. You write that the myth of widespread voter fraud has been debunked so many times we can scarcely believe we are still having to counter it. Uh, I share your disbelief, Michael. Uh, that said, I think it's necessary, frankly, that we keep repeating these uh, facts until we're sick of repeating them. And then we need to repeat them again. I think I'm uh, paraphrasing Frank Luntz on, on that point. 
that's what Republicans do. It's an effective strategy in their case to disinform the American people. Um, so why are Democrats and progressives, as you see it, less successful in getting out the facts of voter fraud and voter suppression? Uh, and uh, feel free, by the way, as sick of it as you may be, uh, to do a bit of debunking just to help set the table here. Well, I don't know if I would say that we are less successful. Uh, when I look at the coverage of news stories and when I look at um, liberal and progressive voters, uh, people who are even remotely informed, uh, they are much more comfortable saying that there's very little voter fraud in America and it doesn't affect elections. Uh, I think that's very different from when we were looking at this uh, issue way back in 2006 during the Bush years and the Attorneygate scandals. Um, so I think we actually have moved the needle quite a bit. The challenge for us, just like it is for the rest of politics in America, is we have 30, 30% of the population, the voting population, that is getting their news from Fox News and, and other unreliable sources, mm -hmm. and they're really not open to looking at the facts, and they're not open to weighing their conclusions against current evidence. So I don't know if we're ever going to get to those folks until they change their minds about how they want to look at and understand the world. Uh, I think in terms of whether or not uh, a moderately informed uh, voter, uh, a policymaker, a member of the media, I think to whether or not they understand and can debunk the voter fraud claims, I think, I think we've succeeded at that. Uh, and I think that's why Trump is really on the ropes on these claims. Yeah, I'm glad to hear you succeeded with that, or that uh, the media, or that we have succeeded in informing the media. I'm I'm not quite so sure. I still see, uh, and I'm concerned. You know, I still see reports that uh, oh, d Democrats say that photo ID restrictions are meant to suppress the vote. However, proponents of photo ID says it's needed to stop voter fraud. Um, you know, despite the lack of evidence that, yeah, you know, there is voter fraud, but just <laughs> almost zero voter fraud carried out by people at the polls, uh, you know, using uh, yeah. false pretenses. Right, right. I, I think you're right that the media is still having trouble with this, with these issues of false equivalency. Um, you know, uh, we know that voter ID suppresses the vote. We know that there are almost no instances of in-person. Matter of fact, I don't think I know of any instances of in-person voter fraud. Certainly, nothing coordinated that has ever impacted an election. Mm -hmm. uh, but the media feels obligated to do the he said, she said, and report on those statements. The problem is they don't take the next step, or or not everyone takes the next step. Mm -hmm. I think I've seen some improvement in this in evaluating those two statements. Um, and certainly, when we see the Trump administration come out and make these completely uh, unsupported, grandiose claims, I see an eagerness in debunking that that I never saw in 2006, where uh, an election official would come out, make these big statements about voter fraud, uh, and just be taken at face value. Yeah. And then months and months later, you'd get a statement saying, oh, well, nothing came back. Y um, so so for me, I'm, I'm kind of positive. I feel positive about that. All right, I'll take it. And and I think you're right. I mean, I have seen more uh, a, a better and uh, more aggressive response to uh, Trump's latest nonsense about millions of illegal votes than I ever, ever recall seeing in our, in our corporate media. So we'll take some comfort there for the moment. Uh, looking for comfort. I mean, I think you, you led some of that back in 2006, right? I mean, you were uh, a voice in the wilderness then, and today, I think uh, that's come a long way. Uh, yeah, I've yeah, I've been trying to lead it for for a decade or so, and you're right. I, and so we should take something from that victory. But 
Uh, you suggest that the uh, that this latest lie from Trump foretells a massive push from the executive branch uh, to, uh, that will make it meant that is meant to make it harder for American citizens to vote. As someone who has yourself, you've been there all along, uh, been a part of that voting rights community now for many years. What what makes you so certain that that's where we are headed with this uh, with this new effort? Is it a fear, or do you really have evidence that this is how they're going to move forward? to make it harder for all Americans on a national level, not just a state-by-state level, as they've been doing? Well, I think if... I, I am afraid. I am afraid that we are going to see uh, an all-out push by the executive branch uh, to restrict voting voting rights and to make, make laws harder for people to vote. Uh, I think that effort is going to embolden the state even more than they already are. Mm-hmm. Um, the basis for my fear comes from the fact that uh, this is the GOP playbook. Um, you make allegations of voter fraud, even when they're not supported, and then you follow up with proposals for restrictive laws. Um, we have seen this play out uh, in many, many cycles now, uh, mm-hmm. really since 2000. Um, so I think just the fact that they're taking the first step in their playbook, uh, and they're doing it so aggressively uh, from an individual who has presented himself as very aggressive and unmoored with facts is enough to be alarming. Uh, the fact that he has nominated Jeff Sessions uh, to serve as Attorney General, who has a history of fraudulently pursuing uh, activists over voter fraud. Uh, he has uh, taken meetings and is likely lining up an appointment for Chris Kobach, uh, the Kansas Secretary of State, who has made a career out of uh, falsely alleging that voter fraud is a threat to our elections. Uh, I think because of these facts, I am very, very nervous. Yeah, I, I share that, um, and I think one of the one of the points I think in, in my initial question there, when I was referring to Democrats and progressives, you know, Republicans never let this go. They keep repeating this stuff over and over and over again, and you don't see a similar effort by Democrats or or even by uh, progressives in general. You know, there are small groups. Uh, the work the Project Vote has done over the past decade has been absolutely heroic, frankly. But you're a small group, and there are a lot of uh, you know, small groups. I don't see that sort of drumbeat from Democrats to expand voting rights and to repeat it over and over again the way I see people uh, on the right repeating these uh, the, these false narratives over and over again. And, and that's what I'm talking well, about. That's what seems to be missing. I, I would agree with you there. I think that, you know, the Democrats have never been um, as supportive of voting rights uh, and and put as much energy into expanding voting rights as we as we have seen the Republicans in their efforts to restrict voting rights. Uh, I think that is a shortcoming on the part of the Democrats, and I think it is in part because uh, you know the Democrats have their own shortcomings in terms of how progressive they are and how, in, how interested they are in expanding um, the electorate in America. Uh, you know they're not certainly uh, a progressive or really very left. Or, uh, entity, they're a pretty moderate entity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think the idea of bringing new people into the electorate or people who are not regular voters uh, creates some uncertainty for them, and they're not comfortable with that. Mm. Yeah, and that's disturbing in and of itself. All right, you, you talk about being ready for what's coming. Let's talk about some specifics. Um, do you see this as a precursor to a na- nationwide photo ID voting restriction? Uh, studies have shown that could result in some 20 to 30 million Americans uh, from being able to cast their otherwise legal vote, uh, Americans that don't have the type of ID 
that has been at least required in in the states that have passed these type of voting restrictions. Is that one uh, one of the uh, things that you expect to come out of this? I think it is very reasonable to expect um, a national photo ID bill coming out of this Congress. I am much, much more worried, however, about a national proof of citizenship bill, uh, specifically perhaps an amendment to the National Voter Registration Act that will require DMVs, public assistance agencies, and anyone taking a voter registration application to have the applicant provide documentary proof of citizenship. I think that is the biggest single threat that we're facing right now. And and thanks for highlighting this, because we hear a lot about, you know, the Voting Rights Act, uh, particularly now that its central provision has been killed for now by the Supreme Court, but not as much about the National Voter Registration Act of 1993. You've done a lot of work on the NVRA. So d- explain very quickly what that law is and why and, and if you feel, is it is it on the chopping block or are they just going to expand it to make it uh, def- defeat its general purpose? Ours is, well, the first, the National Voter Registration Act, uh, you're right, is certainly less well-known than the Voting Rights Act, uh, but it is very critical. It is what made what has made voter registration so access, uh, accessible mm-hmm. across the country. Uh, it requires Department of Motor Vehicles to offer everyone a chance to register to vote when they apply or renew their driver's license. Uh, it requires public assistance agencies like those that administer Medicaid or uh, what you see the food stamps program to offer voter registration uh, to people when they interact with government. Uh, it also protects people from uh, voter purges. Uh, states may not purge voters within the last 90 days before an election. Uh, they may not purge voters uh, just because they haven't voted. Mm-hmm. Uh, if they believe someone has moved but they're not sure, they have to wait. They have to send them notice mm-hmm. and wait two federal election cycles. It is a critical, critical uh, piece of our voting rights infrastructure in America. And there are Republicans who very much do not like it, including Steve King in Iowa, uh, who blames uh, the, the Motor Voter Act, the National Voter Registration Act, for you know uh, undocumented America, undocumented people voting. Uh, we know that uh, the Secretary of State in Kansas, Chris Kobach, again, uh, is a vehement opponent of the National Voter Registration Act because it is so successful. Um, and yep. my belief is that it's likely that uh, there will be an amendment to require proof of citizenship again, uh, or they will try and get rid of some of the purge protections. And and one of the things about uh, proof of citizenship, it sounds reasonable, but w- what it means is that it will radically, because people don't, uh, well, they don't have this proof of citizenship at handy, it would then, uh, uh, you know, radically restrict uh, voting rights groups from going out there and, you know, signing up people on the street. Most people don't walk around with their passport in their pocket uh, when, when they're asked to uh, register at a, at a fair or something like this. Uh, Correct. So, so that's a very a serious concern. But all right, Michael Slater, you write we must be prepared to fight back against all of this. I agree. I bite. But how do we do it? How do we how do we stop this train? How you know what what do you and Project Vote see as the top priorities to fight back against what is likely coming? Too many people, I think, wait until the you know they're run over by the train before they fight back. So I appreciate your call to say we must prepare, but what does that mean? How do we prepare? Well, I think it first means that we need to educate uh, members of the House and Senate, both Republicans and Democrats, about the devastating impact this is going to have in their states. Uh, Chris Kobach uh, found that there were just thousands of ordinary Kansas residents 
who could not vote uh, in their election because they did not have a current uh, uh, an acceptable birth certificate available to them mm-hmm. or a passport. Uh, it was just a huge disruption. disruption. Mm-hmm. Over 15 million people register every two years through one of the NDRA mechanisms, uh, and that will come to a crashing halt in America uh, if a proof of citizenship requirement is, is put into place. So I think it's very important that Congress uh, understand that. Um, I think uh, it's very important that uh, Senate uh, Democrats understand what the motivation is behind this and what the implications are behind it. Uh, we still have the filibuster in America, and I think it's incredibly important that our Senate Democrats understand uh, that when it comes to voting rights, we can't allow them uh, to, co- to make compromises or engage in any sort of horse trading. We cannot allow voter- voting rights to go backwards in America. Um, and I think we need to make sure that uh, moderate uh, Republicans, to the extent that those still exist, understand that this is really an effort at trying to limit the ability of people of color, particularly from participating in the election. There are some Republicans that really don't believe that's the right way to win elections, and I think we need to be talking to them. So this is a matter of pressuring Congress, pressuring your your, your Congress member, your senator. Uh, you know, I fear that uh, people don't do that until it's too late, and you know, until, until the, the the you know the law to restrict voting has been put out there. I, you know, I wish there was something proactive, a proactive way. Uh, that we could recommend, uh, you know, to people to take action here? Because I think if you wait, it's too late, Michael. I guess we're talking about it today, and it hasn't been introduced. So uh, I think we're trying to get that message out right now. Um, I don't know, you know, how to prevent Congress from putting in a bill before it gets done, mm-hmm. uh, other than to make people aware of it. Uh, I think we've been very, very impressed. Everyone has been very impressed with the willingness of people to get out on the streets when there are uh, challenges to our fundamental beliefs as a country. I think that's very reassuring for us. Uh, you know, there's always litigation, but that happens well after mm-hmm. uh, a bill has passed. So I think, you know, I don't think we want to put too much stock in that. I think we really do have to uh, look to Congress to hold the line on some of these issues, and not only in voting rights, but in a wide variety of areas that uh, are important in America. Yeah, that's what I'm worried about. Uh, looking to Congress to hold that line, I think that we need we the people need to do it. Uh, Michael Slater, before I let you go here, uh, how can how can we help ProjectVote.org? Which uh, again, you guys do absolutely crucial work all year round, and, but you know certainly in the lead up to elections, but all year round, uh, and not just when there's a Republican, you know, in the White House. All right. year round, how how can we help you guys do your work at ProjectVote.org? Every nonprofit appreciates donors, so people are welcome to go ahead and, and make a contribution to Project Vote. But uh, if you don't want to do that, please sign up for our newsletter or uh, follow us on Twitter. That's always very helpful. On the Twitters, they are Project Vote. Uh, you can also find Michael uh, when, when he's not busy uh, testifying to Congress on, on C-SPAN. You can also find him on the Twitters at MK Slater. On Twitter, and of course, uh, follow everything they do over there at projectvote.org. Michael, great to talk to you again. I suspect we'll be doing it again in the future. I have that. I have that same feeling. Thank you, Brad. You bet. All right, a quick break, and we're back with the Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. Oh, some breaking news. Stay tuned. <laughs> Hey, this is Brad. Given the outcome of the 2016 election, we really need your support now more than ever. This is not a drill. 
It never was. Please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is serving you. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to keep up the resistance, now more than ever. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. Welcome back to the broadcast. Uh, yeah, some breaking news, as I said before the break, and some good news. A three-judge federal appeals panel on Thursday unanimously refused, unanimously refused to reinstate Trump's targeted travel ban, according to The New York Times, delivering the latest and most stinging judicial rebuke to his effort to make good on a campaign promise and tighten the standards, et cetera, et cetera. So this was the decision from the Ninth Circuit Court. It obviously just came in. I haven't been able to look at it yet at all. But this is a huge blow to Donald Trump, particularly since uh, the, the three judges on here, one of them seemed quite sympathetic in many uh, regards to uh, to Donald Trump was a um, was a Reagan appointee. This was a unanimous decision against Donald Trump, who now tweets in all caps. See you in court. Good luck with that, Mr. President. All right, let's get to it. Our latest Green News Report. And we're going to keep pushing forward. We're going to keep fighting this thing. It's it's uh, it's not over until it's over. Standing Rock Sioux Tribe vows to keep fighting against Dakota Access Pipeline. It doesn't help the United States if it leaks, right? It doesn't help the people who live downstream. I'm not going to win that argument with you because pipelines do leak. New study finds owners of the pipeline reported 69 spills in the last two years. Air pollution linked to increased risk of dementia. More Americans now work in solar jobs than coal jobs. Plus, Sweden votes to go zero emissions by 2050. Hope that's soon enough. All of those stories and more straight ahead. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. So it's not safe. It's just safe enough for the Native Americans. No, it's not a race thing. It's that if the pipe leaks, there's fewer of them than of us. And why are there fewer of them? (laughs) Yep. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, things are not looking good uh, up in North Dakota. Nope, there is bad news for the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe. The U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, under the direction of the Trump administration, this week suddenly reversed course and granted the final easement needed for completion of the controversial Dakota Access Pipeline, allowing it to cross under the Missouri River near the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe Reservation in North Dakota, an easement that the Corps had previously denied under the Obama administration. The reversal halts a pending environmental impact assessment and further consultation with the tribe, which has fought the pipeline for years with massive protests and in the courts because it threatens their sacred sites and their water supply. Remember, the pipeline had originally been routed away from the majority white city of Bismarck for that exact reason. In an interview with Democracy Now!, Tribal Chairman David Archambault vowed to challenge the decision in court. Our treaty rights are violated. Our human rights are violated. Federal laws are being violated. But we need to get that out there. We need to be heard by decision makers. And um, it seems like the process is trying to expedite and, and facilitate something that's unlawful. 
The tribe has vowed to challenge the decision in court on the grounds that the environmental impact statement was wrongfully terminated. The pipeline company says construction will start immediately. Of course it will, because to hell with the rule of law, to hell with those Native Americans. They don't deserve clean water and sacred grounds. Protests in solidarity are again erupting against the pipeline around the country, including at local offices of banks that are invested in the pipeline. In the wake of the Army Corps decision this week, the City Council of Seattle voted unanimously to divest more than $3 billion held with Wells Fargo, becoming the first major city in the country to sever ties with a bank because of its investment in the Dakota Access Pipeline. Go get them, Seattle. And they were followed shortly thereafter by Davis, California. Nice going, Davis. And inspired by the Women's March, the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe and tribes across the country are now teaming up and inviting allies across the country to join them at the Native Nations March. That's on March 10th in Washington, D.C., and held with satellite marches around the world. A lot of marching lately. Going to be a boon for the shoe industry. And now a new study released this week backs up the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe's concerns over the pipeline, an analysis of federal and state records done by the Louisiana Anna Bucket Brigade, a state-based environmental justice group, found that the company that owns the Dakota Access Pipeline, Energy Transfer Partners, has reported 69 spills over just the last two years and polluted rivers in four states. Again, that's 69 pipeline spills in just two years. What could possibly go wrong? Meanwhile, another impact of fossil fuels... Alzheimer's disease. A new study links long-term exposure to vehicle exhaust and other sources of fine particle air pollution and finds that long-term exposure nearly doubles the risk of developing dementia, particularly in older women. Anybody check the air quality outside of Trump Tower lately? That's on top of the health care costs that are caused by air pollution for asthma, lung disease, and heart disease. But some good news. The solar industry in the United States added 51,000 jobs over the last year according to a solar industry group. That means there are now twice as many Americans working in the solar industry than are working in the coal industry. Solar now accounts for one of every 50 new jobs in the United States. Don't tell Donald Trump. And China is moving even faster. In 2016, China doubled its total solar capacity in just one year. And finally, Sweden has passed legislation binding all future administrations to reach net zero emissions nationwide by 2045. That's a law to ramp down fossil fuels and ramp up renewables to zero emissions by 2045, and no future administration can overturn it. Finally, some good news. A shame we have to go all the way to Sweden to get any. For much more on all of those reports and the ones we couldn't get to, please check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Don't forget, you can download our reports anytime via Stitcher, TuneIn, or iTunes. Find us, follow us, and share us on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. Thank you, Des. I got to get out. I'm running late. Uh, Once again, a three-judge federal appeals court panel has refused to reinstate Donald Trump's executive order barring entry to the U.S. of uh, nationals from seven predominantly Muslim nations. I got to go. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen. More on that tomorrow. Uh, And to my guest today, Michael Slater of ProjectVote.org. Drop me an email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. Find me on Facebooks and Twitter at the Bradblog. That's it. 
Happy birthday, Dad. I love you. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Good luck, world.